Well, if you haven't already, for the song, if you hadn't already turned to Psalm 19, you can do that. That's where we'll be tonight. But the title of tonight's message is Acceptable Words and Meditations. Acceptable Words and Meditations. You see, the words of your mouth are often a good indicator of your focus and your thinking. You speak about the things you are captivated by. You spill what you're filled with is another way of thinking about that same idea. And so as you think about the indicators of what, where your thinking is at or the things that you're focused on, the words of your mouth are good indicators of that. So how do we know what are the meditations of one's heart? Well, the best way is to listen to the words of their mouth. And generally, it's a reliable indicator of the things that they're interested in, the things that they're captivated by, the things that they are energized by, or even the things that they're motivated by. Those will come out of their conversation, the words that they say, the things that they're wanting to talk about. And often your words, in that sense, are quite revealing. And because they're so revealing, they're worth evaluating at times. Because for the man or woman of faith, pleasing the Lord should be your primary goal or objective. That's not just true of some people, that's true of every man or woman of faith. Pleasing the Lord should be the desire of your heart. And so if that's the desire of your heart, then it should be reflected in acceptable words or words that are consistent with that kind of a perspective, that sort of an attitude, that kind of a focus in your, uh, in your thinking. And so you think of even of verses that touch on that. 2 Corinthians 5.9 says, this is Paul talking, but he's talking about the group of people that are with him in ministry. And he's saying, so corporately, this is true of us, and it, it should correspondingly be true of you as well. But he says, therefore, we make it our aim, whether present with you or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. See, my, my aim isn't to please myself or have a life that would make me happy in my own strength, with my own focus, with my own direction, with my own perspective, with my own priorities, but that I would have a life that is pleasing to me because it's pleasing to Him. And I see that in His presence and being directed by Him is the place that I can find full joy, the kind of joy that would really have any lasting effect on my life. And so, that's my objective. I'm not, I'm not serving you or, or even responding or interacting with you, Paul is saying to these believers, so that it would be pleasing to you or pleasing to myself. It's so that it would be pleasing to him. And you think about how is the, my life song or the substance of my life going to be pleasing to him? Well, it's going to start with my thinking, with my attitude, and then it's going to be reflected in the things that I say. And so this desire to please him flows from a recognition of who God is and what he has done because the natural question is why would I want to please him? What would motivate me to want to please the Lord with my, the substance or the essence of my life? And it starts with this recognition of who is God, how awesome and amazing is he, and what has he done for me? How has he undertaken to provide for me, to give me direction for my life? to undertake with every facet of, facet of my life to bless me in so many different ways. And so as you think about that or you have that perspective, the power then you have to remember for doing so flows from God himself. The power for accomplishing the objective of wanting to please the Lord is from God alone. It's only possible because of his provision for you. So as you're walking through this mental sort of a process and you're saying, uh, why would this be my focus? Well, because I see how amazing God is. I see how much he loves me. I respond to his love toward me by loving him back in a way that I say, well, if, if Christ has been willing to do or God has been willing to do so much for me, why wouldn't I want to live life with him? If he knows so much more than me and if he's on my side and if he's for me all of, my, all of the time and if he's wanting my life to be abundant, why wouldn't I let him lead? Why wouldn't I take his advice? Why wouldn't I take his instruction to heart? And as I'm motivated to do that or have a desire to do that, then will I recognize that 
having that desire is just half of the battle, but then allowing him to make those changes and to direct and to lead and to empower that way of life is the second big part of that. That I'm not going to be able to accomplish that desire or experience that outcome through my own strength. So I have to see that that's the best outcome for me. And then I have to also see that it's only God that's going to be able to produce that outcome in my life. And the thing about taking stock or evaluating these revealing words, the words of your mouth, evaluating that, the reason there would be value in that is because believers are easily deceived. They're not immune from the deception of the world or the deception of the flesh. The deception of the enemy is powerful, and it's something that every Christian is combating or is faced with. And so the Christians, believers, are easily deceived, and they tend to think the Lord holds a more prominent position in their thinking and lives than He actually does. That's been my experience in my own life. And perhaps you would agree with me that that's been the experience in your life, that you tend to have an inflated view of how prominent a position God has in your life, starting with your thinking and then your manner of living. You want it to be true. Maybe you have an inward desire that that would be true, but it's actually not as true as you hoped it would be or wish it to be. And the proof is in the pudding, because as you think about acceptable words and acceptable meditations, they reveal That in fact, I'm not where I wanted to be or hoped I would be, but by God's grace, now seeing where I'm actually at, it will humble me, cause me to have a posture that is more dependent on Him, more trusting of Him, more focused on Him, so that as I I have that renewed occupation with Him, that He can make it more and more true in my life to a greater and greater extent. That's what we call growth over time. You see, Christian growth is not static. It's, it's something that you, could, you can grow and you can also regress. But even growth, it's growth over time. It's something that you learn here a little, there a little, line upon line, precept upon precept. As you learn more and you have more and more experiences where you see yourself for who you really are, you see God for who he really is, then you grow in grace. You grow in understanding and God is able to, to a greater and greater extent, make your desires more consistent with reality, the reality of your life. And so God's revelation of himself is intended to provide that proper perspective. As you think about, as we tend to be deceived, as we tend to not have the proper perspective, then we need to have God give that to us. And God does that by revealing himself to us so that we can have our thinking altered. We can have our thinking kind of kicked back into gear, so to speak, so that we would have the right mentality and the right posture of dependence on God so that he could accomplish what he wants to in our lives so that the words of our mouths and the meditations of our heart would be acceptable to him, which is where ultimately we get our title for tonight, Acceptable Words and Meditations, because David in Psalm 19, you're going to see that he describes the effect of God's revelation on his perspective and desires. He ends with this idea that my desire is that my words would be acceptable, that my meditations of my heart would be acceptable, the words of my mouth would be acceptable, but he gets to that by first reflecting on God's revelation and the effect that God's revelation and continued revelation has had on him to shake up his thinking, to shake up his attitude, to get him the proper perspective so that God can make true of his life, can make true of him, this idea that his words and his thinking behind those words would be acceptable to God. So there we are in Psalm 19. Let's dig in a little bit here tonight and take a closer look. Let's start here, though, with this section that makes up the majority of the psalm, which is that God reveals his glory or God reveals his awesomeness. That's another way of thinking about God's glory. God reveals his awesomeness with this purpose, with a purpose in mind that it would shake up our attitude, shake up our thinking, shake up our perspective, bring us to a place where we could see ourselves for what we are and see him for what he is or who he is, I should say. And so let's read these first 11 verses. Actually, you know the psalm because it's only 
14 verses long. Let's just read the whole thing. That way we'll have it kind of fresh in our minds. We sang through a bunch of it here. But let's start with verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utter speech and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. Its rising is from one end of heaven and its circuit to the other end, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Then we sang this, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether." More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from my Cleanse me from secret faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and I shall be innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Now these first 11 verses... They speak to, though, God's revelation of his glory or awesomeness with a perspective that it would change or modify or affect our thinking. And then after having affected our thinking, it would affect our manner of living. There would be an outcome from that changed thinking. And David is going to identify two aspects of God's revelation. The first is through general revelation. God reveals his glory through general revelation. And verses 1 through 6 speak to the idea of God's revelation through general revelation. See, general revelation is a theological construct, but it refers simply to God's revelation to all people at all times and in all places. And one aspect of that is through nature itself. So nature represents one primary form of general revelation where you didn't, need a, you didn't need God to write you anything or speak to you anyway. He spoke through a format that was observable to everyone, to all people at all times and in all places. So think about how God used nature to do that. God reveals himself through the observable physical universe in many different ways. I was just talking with a believer here before the service got started about even just the splendor of the snowflake and how it's so amazing. Now, that's one small example where there's an obvious design. There's no way this could accidentally happen where every snowflake would be six-sided and yet be unique, would be absolutely beautiful but yet falling from the sky in a way that could not be random chance over time. There would have to be, if it shows artistry, there has to be an artist behind it. If it shows that there's, it's a created thing, then there has to be a creator behind it. If it shows a design, then there has to be a designer behind it. And that's where the world's explanations for these things fall short as they seek desperately to exclude God's truth from the equation. But God already gives the answer. I'm the designer. I'm the creator. I'm the artist behind this. I'm the songwriter who ultimately has penned this song. And why not just give me credit where credit is due. So there's this observable physical universe that is absolutely mind-blowing and where even secular scientists who deny the existence of God have to come to a place where they say, there's no way that we could have this absent a designer behind this design. And so instead of recognizing God, they have promoted the idea of intelligent design. That in and of itself is a huge admission though. It admits that there's something bigger that has to be behind this, yet they just will not give credit where credit is due. So you think about natural revelation or general revelation through nature. 
God is revealing himself to us and you can see it all around. I hope you get out of your houses. I hope you look around and smell the roses, literally. And you say, how could that smell like that? And I hope you see the hummingbirds. And I hope you look at the swans that are sitting in the rivers right now. I I hope you see that and you see God's majesty in it. Because here the focus is on natural revelation, but more specifically, it's a focus on natural revelation via the heavens. And you see that in verse 1, the heavens. Now, David could have focused on any number of different aspects of observable, the observable physical universe and how it declares God. It declares God's glory. But he, he chose the heavens. The the celestial bodies. So you see that in verse 1. The heavens declare the glory or magnificence of God. And then the second phrase, the firmament, which the firmament refers to the skies or the expanse on which celestial bodies appear to be projected. Isn't that fun? The expanse on which celestial bodies appear to be projected. You see, in David's day, They didn't have all of the scientific advancement that would actually confirm God's design. They didn't have that. They they saw it from their own limited human perspective at the time. And so when they looked up at the night sky and at the stars and at the sun, they imagined a great canvas on which were being projected these lights. Isn't that a beautiful picture? The celestial bodies. And he's saying in a poetic way here, That projected beauty shows God's handiwork. It's it's like a painting where the canvas is there and the painter has painted it and the canvas is just a tool or an instrument to project the artistry of the artist who is painting. And that's how David is trying to portray this. Now, the heavens and the firmament, the sky's the skies that are containing these celestial bodies, they're both effectively kind of speaking to the same thing. We're looking up. Now, imagine that David could have picked anything of the observable universe that wouldn't necessarily have caused you to look up. But you see the beauty of that? He, he, didn't, he didn't pick an animal. He didn't pick uh, an amazing thing like even I spoke of hummingbirds. You know, the hummingbird if they didn't have the exact beats per minute that they have of their flying, they wouldn't be able to fly or survive. You can't work your way up to, it's called an irreducible minimum. It has to have that exact RPM or he cannot, the hummingbird cannot fly. You can't evolve to that. You have to have that from the very beginning. In any event, I keep going off track here tonight, but he didn't point to that. That would have had you looking where? It had you looking around. He takes the part of the observable universe that causes you to look up. And he says, I want to point to that as the thing that is declaring and screaming out the magnificence and the awesomeness of God. So these things are said to declare or proclaim God and his glory. Now they do this continuously. See in verse 2 it says, day after day they continue to speak. Night after night night, they make him speak. Known. You see, there was a purpose to it. Yeah, they would provide light. Yes, they would provide direction. But they also would, day after day, continue to speak of God's glory. Night after night, they would continue to make him known. And so David is pointing to how this general relation, general revelation of God, but let's just take those theological words out of there, how God's showing himself should affect our thinking, which he's going to get to at the end. Now, it says that they proclaim their message everywhere without speaking in verses 3 and 4. So as you think about how this heavenly expanse proclaims a message, they do it all of the time, but they do it everywhere and they do it without speaking. Their message has gone throughout the earth and their words to all the world. So there's a message being communicated here but it doesn't involve actual words. But yet the message is crystal clear. And what was that message? God is awesome. God is majestic. That's the message that's being communicated through these celestial bodies without a single word being spoken. But you see how it says that 
there is nothing hidden from its heat. You know, even speaking of just the sun, you know, at the end of verse 4, it says all the earth to the end of the world, but then verse 6, there's nothing hidden. Meaning, it's everywhere, it's everyone that God has declared this to. You see, the sun is given as this ultimate example, if you will, of these heavenly message bearers. There's a message being communicated by creation itself, specifically the creation in the sky above us. And the primary message bearer, in many ways you could say, is the sun. It's the most obvious one. And so verses 4, the end of 4 into 6, he says, God has made a home in the heavens for the sun. It bursts forth. Now listen how the sun is described here. It bursts forth like a radiant bridegroom after his wedding. It rejoices like an athlete eager to run the race. The sun rises at one end of the heavens and follows its course to the other end. Nothing can hide from its heat. Now I gave you a simpler version there, but that's the idea. The sun is just an exa- one, one example of these heavenly message bearers. Now, the other thing to take away as you think about general revelation, specifically through nature itself, is that natural revelation renders mankind without excuse for rejecting God. You see that David is clear to say this message has been sent out clearly to everyone everywhere. And Paul communicates that truth in Romans chapter 1. You could turn there. Romans chapter 1, we're going to look at two passages in Romans. Romans 1, 19 and 20. Natural revelation renders mankind without excuse for rebelling against or rejecting God. He's saying God has revealed himself to everyone everywhere with the with what objective in mind that it would impact man's thinking, that man would respond in faith to God, see how small he is, see how big God is, he himself is, and see how big God is, and then respond in faith to trust God to do for man what man could never do for himself. That's the expected response. And he's given that revelation to everyone so that there would be no one who could say, God never gave me an opportunity to respond to him in faith. Romans 1.19 starts with, because what, they, because what may be known of God, meaning it's available, it's manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. And how did he do that? For, he's saying every man has been shown this, but how? For since the creation of the world, his, God's, invisible attributes are clearly seen, meaning they're not hidden in any way. Being understood by the things that are made, mankind is one of those things that are made, even God's eternal power and Godhead, so that they, mankind, is or are without excuse. See, God's existence and power can be clearly seen through observing the universe. The order, intricacy, and wonder of creation speak to the existence of a powerful, amazing, spectacular, majestic, glorious creator. There is no, ex- there is no excuse for denying or rejecting him. Now, as you think about general revelation, the other primary form of general revelation is conscience. So as you think about, just as a little overview here of general revelation, God uses revelation, the revelation of himself. He shows himself so that people would respond. He doesn't show himself just so that people could say, oh, good for you. Oh, isn't that nice? It's so that people would respond to him in faith. And so the other aspect of general revelation, just because we're talking about these two different types of revelation here, what is known as general revelation, then we're going to talk about special revelation. But the second aspect of general revelation, just in passing, is conscience. That's the other primary form of general revelation. And the Bible says that God has revealed himself, not just in creation, not just in the natural revelation, but also to each person through his or her conscience. So turn to Romans chapter 2. And let's read verses 14 and 15. Just as God is saying, man is without excuse for not responding to me because I've made myself known to man in undeniable ways. Romans 2, verse 14. Even Gentiles, it says, who do not have God's written law, meaning there's the special revelation where God took extra steps to reveal additional things about himself to people, but let's just say they don't have that. So even Gentiles who do not have God's written law, 
They show that they know his law when they instinctively obey it, even without having heard it. They didn't need to have it given to them to know that there was right and wrong, that there were standards, that God had standards of what was right and wrong, that God put that in their heart through a conscience. Now, they demonstrate that God's law is written in their hearts, not on paper, but in their hearts, for their own conscience and thoughts either accuse them or tell them they are doing right. That's pretty powerful, isn't it? And so those are the two forms of general revelation, the two primary forms, I should say. Maybe there's more. But the point David is getting at in summary of this section is that David clearly recognizes the awesomeness of God as he writes these lines poetically describing the natural revelation of God's majesty. He's saying, I witness that. I observe it daily, and it's had an effect on me. It's had an effect on my thinking, and it's on my desires, that are part of that thinking, and then my corresponding manner of living. I'm, I'm prayerful that God would utilize this awe that I have for God to shape not just my thinking, but to shape my very life. And so he'll get to that. That's what he's building to. Because he starts with general revelation. Now he's going to talk about how God has revealed his glory or awesomeness through special revelation. Let's look at verses 7 through 9. Now, this is where we sing. It shouldn't, I got that wrong. It's actually 7 through 11. So, in that section, though, we sang, the focus now shifts to not just natural revelation or what we call general revelation, but to special revelation. Verse 7 the law of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord, the statutes of the Lord, the commandments of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, the judgments of the Lord are what are in view here as we look at this section. So special revelation refers to God revealing himself personally or directly. Special revelation includes physical appearances of God, dreams, visions, the written word of God, and the revelation of Jesus Christ where God went beyond just the natural realm, the observable universe, and he said, I'm going to speak to man directly and personally and give additional information about myself to man. So you think even about some of those things. There were people that God spoke to in dreams and visions. Much of that made its way into the canon of Scripture. There was people that God spoke to in terms of this is my word to you, this is my revealed word to you, inspired them to write it down, which then became the Bible as we know it, all Scripture is given. It's God-breathed by inspiration from God, and it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, and for correction, and instruction in righteousness. And so God breathed His truth to man. Part of that became the written Word of God. Now, how else did God have special revelation to man? The Word became flesh. Jesus Christ became flesh, and He dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So God became man in the unique incarnation of the unique God-man, Jesus Christ, as he was fully God and fully man, but he came and he pitched his tent among us, he lived among us, he rubbed elbows with us, and much of what the apostles were teaching, they were taught directly from God himself, Jesus Christ, as they had that opportunity to live life with him on earth. And you think, wow, how could God is so awesome that he saw how difficult it was in many ways to even relate to him given the difference between his supernatural status and our natural status, his infinite being and our finite being. And he said, I'm going to make this a little easier and I'm going to become like you, the revelation of Jesus Christ. I'm going to suffer all things and experience all things and be tempted in every way just like you. And I'm going to dwell, I'm going to pitch my tent among you. And I'm going to do that so that you can get to know me in a way that had previously been unrevealed or or impossible. Amazing, but true. And so there's examples there. Here we're talking about Scripture, the written Word of God, and God miraculously guided the authors of Scripture to correctly record His message to mankind. When you talk about revelation, it's God's message to mankind, how God is revealing Himself to people. 
Now, he did that in a way where they still use their own styles and personalities and backgrounds that comes through the pages, but it's all authored by the same author, God himself. Now, David highlights here his appreciation for God's glory, majesty, and splendor as revealed in the written word of God. And David also pairs these observations with descriptions of the personal value and impact of God's word. So as we look at this section, let's look at these observations that David, and descriptions that David makes that speak to the majesty and splendor revealed through the written word of God, but also speak to the impact and a personal value and effect that knowing this or having this revelation made to man should have or would have on a person. And so we start with the law or the instructions many translations have. The instructions or the law of the Lord is what? It's perfect. It doesn't have any mistakes in it. What is the impact that it should have? It says it converts the soul. It revives or refreshes is what that word means. It revives or refreshes the soul. That sounds very valuable. That sounds impactful. The second one is the testimony of the Lord, the witness of God. It's sure. It's not uncertain in any way. It's sure, it's fixed, it's reliable and dependable. But what should the impact of appreciating that or recognizing that or observing that, what should the impact be? It says, making wise the simple. That's us, that's you and I, simple. It's only pride that makes us think that we're something when we're nothing. God says, you're simple. I didn't say that, God said that. He said it to me too. He said, you need everything from me. You've got nothing to bring to this equation. But I can make you wise. I can give you wisdom. It says, if any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men liberally, and he doesn't hold back. But that, even that verse reminds us that the wisdom can't be sourced in self. It has to be sourced in the God of all wisdom, the God who is alone wise, the God who alone is immortal, the God who alone is all-powerful and all-knowing. You see, by recognizing who God is and seeing who you are, we see that God intends through His written Word to give us something we lack, which is to give us wisdom, even though we would naturally be simple. What's the next one? The statutes of the Lord are right. So you talk about the word righteous. I want to be righteous. Well, that's to be right, right with God and to do what is right. So the statutes of the Lord are right. That's an observation. That's a fact. What should the impact of that be? Rejoicing the heart. That word rejoicing just means bringing joy to the heart. Seeing that we have a direction. We've been given a roadmap. We haven't been left empty-handed. We don't have to wander like the rest of the world does, wondering why am I here? Where did I come from? Where am I going? What is the point of this life? How should I interact with my, my wife? How should I respond to my friends? How should I deal with my children? How should I interact with my parents? How should I respond to my boss? What should my focus and perspective in life be? How should I deal with loss? How should I deal with death? All of these answers are found in God's guidebook. Do you want to know it? Do you want to study it? Do you want to invest in it so that you would have that direction? You see, knowing those things should bring joy to your heart. The next one is, The observation or the fact, stated fact, is the commandment of the Lord is pure. That word means flawless. The commandment of the Lord, the instructions of the Lord are flawless. Now, that wouldn't be true of any instruction you could get from me. Don't don't come and ask me how to build the deck. I'd give you some instructions, but it wouldn't result in what you had hoped for. But that's not true with God. All of his instructions, all of his directions are flawless. And so, you see the impact it should have. The commandment of the Lord is flawless, enlightening the eyes. That means to give insight or understanding to the eyes. If God's instructions are perfect, then that stuff, that direction that I was lacking or that understanding that I was lacking, I can find it in him. And then David ends with three general observations in this section. When you read verses 
9 through 11. And the first one is this. The fear of the Lord is clean. Now, he doesn't speak to an, a personal impact that this would have on you. So this is just a general observation that he ends with, almost in a summary format. But he says, the fear of the Lord is clean or without fault, enduring forever. It never changes. It'll never go away. It'll never be lost. He says, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Now, that could speak to a summary of all of what was just said. They're perfect, they're sure, they're right, they're flawless, they're forever, they're without fault, they're true. And how many of them? All of them. You see, the takeaway is all of the words of the Lord are beneficial. As you see God reveal himself through creation, as you see God reveal himself through his word, there's this thing that is beneficial to me, where I learn something about God, which also causes me to learn something about myself. You see, God's instructions are desirable. They're valuable. They're protective. They're worth heeding. That's the third observation that David makes. And if we look at that, we see that in verses 10 and 11. So, the fear of the Lord is clean, the judgments of the Lord are true, but the third general observation is that they're valuable, they're desirable, they're protective, meaning they're meant to protect me, and they're worth heeding. He says, more to be desired are they, what? God's revealed truth. More to be desired are they than, what? Gold, the thing that most people would have thought was most valuable. Yea, then not just a little bit of gold, much fine gold. They're more valuable than that. They're more desirable than that. Then you could switch to something else that'd be desirable. Go to your stomach, right? Stomach is the source of a lot of direction we take. Uh, it says, okay, if we're going to take that approach, then it's sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb, the most sweet item that was available in that day. It's sweeter than that. It's more valuable than that than gold. It's sweeter than honey. And he says, moreover, by them, your servant is warned Meaning, meaning that David sees the protective nature of this. God doesn't give us his instructions to make us feel bad about ourselves, though at times it would show us where we're really at. It would show us how different we are than God is. He gives us his instructions. Their instructions in righteousness are given to give us a life that is joy-filled, that is wonderful, that is abundant. That's why God gives the instructions. Remember, too often we can see God as this dictator who is looking down at us with disdain and disgust. He's looking down at us and he sees us with nothing other than disappointment. That's how we can start to picture God in this authoritative kind of a way of just bitter, bitter disappointment with us because we're, such, we're so flawed, we're such failures, we're so broken. But God doesn't see us that way. God sees us in love. God sees us as accepted in the beloved because of the work of his son. God saw us as having such value that he was willing to bankrupt heaven to send his only son to die in our place, to pay our debt, so that if we would just accept what he had done for us when we were hopeless and helpless and hellbound, he could translate us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of life. He could take us from being dead and he could make us alive. He could take us from being lost and make us found again, not because of what we had done, but because of his desperate love for us, his provision for us, how he had made a way for us. And so when you're thinking of God, even once you make the decision to trust in the work of his son on your behalf, that moment you're said to have been born into God's family, he says, I'll never let you go. But as you think of that relationship, it's the relationship of a father with a son. A father with a son, it's a paternal relationship. It's not a relationship of an authoritar authoritarian dictator who is distant and far away and just looking to keep his subjects in line, and to smack you when you're not. It's through the lens of a father and his love for his child and the father's desire that his child would thrive, that his child would have joy, that his child would know a wonderful life, that a child could be saved from himself, so to speak, could be warned away from bad choices and bad decisions and hurtful and harmful things. That a child could, though, when he does make mistakes, a child could be restored. A child could be lifted back up, have the dust and the dirt brushed off of his knees, have the Band-Aid put across the scrape, 
and say, okay, child, there may be a scar there now. You may live with that scar forever, but I'm right here, son. Let's move forward. I can help give you some direction. That's the kind of God we have. He's for us. He's not against us. These instructions are intended for your benefit, and David sees that. And seeing God in that kind of a way can impact your thinking so that in your desire would be, God, I trust you. I know that you're for me. I know that your directions are intended to benefit me, and I can take you at your word. I can want to move forward with your direction, with your guidance, with your instructions being the things that I'm heeding. Very different way of looking at things than the way many people were raised to think. And so that's what David sees in all of this. He recognizes the awesomeness of his God as he writes these lines about the value of the word of God. Just as David recognized the awesomeness of his God as he wrote those lines poetically about the majesty of God as revealed through nature. Now we move on to the impact of this. See, awe of God and respect for his word, it should produce a desire to elevate, serve, and please him. Awe of God and respect for his word should produce a desire to elevate, serve, and please him. Let's read these final verses. Verse 12. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from, my, cleanse me from secret faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and I shall be innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. You see, reflecting on the glory and majesty of your God and the reliability, wisdom, perfection, value, and purpose of his instructions to you should affect or alter your thinking and then ultimately your manner of living. You see, it has to start with the thinking and then it flows into a manner of living. It should alter or affect your thinking and your desires for life and ultimately your manner of living. But reflecting on God's revelation, His majesty, His glory, seeing the value in His word, that's what's going to cause that. That's what's going to bring that about. So you say, in what ways would that be true? Well, how would it alter or affect your thinking? Well, it should humble you. Look at verse 12, the first part of it there, where it says, who can understand his errors? Who can understand his errors? That's not a statement of pride, friends. That's a statement of humility. He's saying, I'm too daft to even understand what I don't know or where my thinking is even screwed up. I don't even know enough to be able to identify all of the ways I'm screwed up. I need God to do that for me. I need Him to reveal these things to me, the places that change is needed. I need God to actually even do that. There's so much humility in that. That's one way it should alter your thinking is to keep you humble. Now, the other thing is it should make you depend on him. You see that in these phrases in the rest of verse 12 and verse 13. He says, cleanse me from secret faults. Who is the focus on? God. I need you to do this, God. I'm depending on you to do this, God. I don't even know my own errors. I can't even understand them all. But cleanse me from secret faults. Secret, what does that mean? It's unknown. I don't know it. Then he says, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. He says, let them not have dominion over me. So cleanse, one verb, keep back. Let not have, so let them not have, the three verbs here. They're all God being the one in focus. God is the one being called on to act and intervene in David's life. There's more humility in that, but there's also this posture of dependence on God to do for him what he can't do for himself. You see, the result of trusting the Lord and depending on him is spiritual success. You see that with this conclusion, then, after God does these things as I depend on him, then I shall be blameless. Not before that, not through my own strength, through God's intervention in my life. Then I shall be blameless, and then I shall be innocent of great transgression." You see, this is the exclusive means of experiencing success is this dependent, humble mindset on God working and making changes in my life. Now, the third thing that should be affected or altered or the third way your thinking should be affected and altered is you should, this reflection, reflecting on God's glory and majesty, it should make you 
want to elevate Him, serve Him, and please Him. So it should humble you. It should make you depend on Him. It should make you want to elevate Him, serve Him, and please Him. And you see this with verse 14 where we're ending tonight. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. You see, the the meaning of the word acceptable there focuses on that which is pleasing to Him. As I reflect on your majesty, your revelation through nature and your word, it should make me humble, it should make me depend on you, it should make me want to please you, to serve you, to lift you up. You see, it doesn't say, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in my sight. It doesn't say, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in the sight of others. It says, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord. See, the words of your mouth originate with the meditations of your heart. They go hand in hand. Matthew 12, 34b, Jesus is speaking. He says, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So when you're thinking about what's going to come out of my mouth is going to originate with the meditations of my heart, it starts internally. And that's what Philippians 4.8 is talking about. I'll spill what I'm filled when Paul is talking to these Philippian believers. He's saying, finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. We're speaking about the meditations of my heart are driving the words of my mouth. What am I going to be meditating on? Is it going to be something uplifting like God's truth? God's revealed word? God's direction and instruction and perspective about life? Is it going to be this? Or is it going to be my own human reasoning? My own human understanding? The understanding of other human beings? The horizontal plane around me? The thinking of the world? The thinking of my friends? The thinking of my parents? If the thinking of my friends and the world and my parents isn't influenced by God's thinking, then it's of no benefit to me. But we seek out and we're influenced by and we take in all of these sources of influence and we're not careful about guarding them and we don't vet them and we don't consider where are they really coming from and we're deceived about where they're really coming from. And we believe somehow that we are not at risk of being negatively affected by these things. And yet God says you are. And these ought to be the things that you're meditating on. Are they? Too often they're not in my life. I think if you're being honest tonight, you're going to say, too often they're not in my life. I'm meditating and thinking on and pondering and talking about and discussing all of these things that are not lovely, are not noble, are not pure, are not upright, are not of good report, have no virtue, they're not praiseworthy. And they're not the kinds of things I ought to be meditating on because the words of my mouth are not going to be acceptable to God until the meditations of my heart are acceptable to God. That has to come first. It's a cart before the horse scenario. There's no success unless the meditations of my heart come first so that the the words of my mouth, the words of my lips can be acceptable to God. Why? Because they're going to be sourced in God because I was meditating on His truth and as His Spirit then spoke through me, the things I would say would be acceptable to Him because they would be sourced in Him. It's not complicated math, friends, but it's the kind of thing that we easily forget. And you see, these three things, being humble, depending on Him, having a desire then to elevate, serve, and please Him, those are the only reasonable responses to seeing, understanding, and believing these revealed truths about your God. That's why David started with the revelation part of it first, natural revelation, revelation through God's Word. And the thing that he ends with is awesome and it's perfectly appropriate because he says, God is the only source behind any walk of faith. He says, I want the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart to be acceptable to you, O Lord, but I see that it's only going to be through your power. You see that as we look at the very last line there? 
He says, I want these to be acceptable in your sight, O Lord. Now, how does he describe the Lord? My strength and my redeemer. Redeemer meaning the one who can purchase me out of debt, can rescue me from bondage. My strength, that's the same word that was translated last time we looked at the rock of my salvation. God is my rock. Remember we looked at that psalm? Same word. My strength, my rock, the thing that I can rely upon, it's not myself. See, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. A walk of faith by definition involves allowing God to direct, but also to empower. You can't do it through your own strength. So we have acceptable words and meditations as the title of our message tonight. You see, when you think back to how we started, pleasing the Lord, it should be the primary goal of every man or woman of faith. So the question naturally, is that your primary goal or objective? The desire to do so flows from a recognition of who God is and what he has done for you. Do you see who he is? Do you recognize what he's done for you? The power for accomplishing this objective is God alone through his provision for you. Are you reminded of that tonight as we ended with those, that last phrase here in verse 14? Is this my heart's desire? Perhaps reflecting on God's revelation of himself to you, how he's shown himself to you, that's what had an impact on David's thinking. Perhaps if you're sitting here tonight and you're saying, my heart's desire is not to have the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable to him. I actually don't think of that at all, and it doesn't concern me really at all. I am busy with life. And if that's true, and you're just, it's great to be honest about that, but if that's true, maybe what would help is what helped David. Maybe you could reflect on what God has revealed about himself and his word. Maybe on your drive home tonight, if it gets dark enough, you could reflect on what God has revealed about himself in the canvas of the night sky. And you could be convinced that because he's so awesome, then he's worth trusting. And he's, if he's worth trusting, then I should want to please him with my life. Not through my own strength, but through his strength. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time that we could spend together in your word. Thank you for this wonderful psalm. Pray that it would have been encouraging to those who heard it. Pray that as we reflect on your truth and your, even your created world around us, the observable universe, that we'd be reminded and convinced again that you're an awesome God. You're a majestic God, that you're worthy of trusting, and that we would let you lead and direct in our lives, lead and direct in our thinking, and then have a, an effect on our manner of living. Pray that all this would have been to your honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.